Before we jump into this week's episode, we wanted to let you know about an upcoming Facebook Live event with Peter Lightheart and Dr. Steve Jeffrey. This will be happening this Saturday, May 2nd at 1 p.m. Central Time, and will be on clarity and charity in a time of panic. Recent research in behavioral economics and psychology has revealed that our decisions are subject to systematic biases that lead to serious mistakes, misunderstandings, and errors of judgment. Christians are not immune from these biases. We often do a bad job of sifting the scientific wheat from the media chaff, and an even worse job of behaving charitably and responsibly when we engage with other believers who think differently. Perhaps a broader awareness of our cognitive biases may enable us as Christians to do a better job of evaluating scientific claims and handling matters of conscientious disagreement. To watch this discussion, please tune in at 1 p.m. Central Time this Saturday, May 2nd, on our Facebook page, which is linked in the show notes. And we look forward to seeing you there. Welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are very excited to be starting a new series. Here, Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers are going to walk through the book of Acts. In this episode, they're going to have some preliminary discussion as well as give a very helpful overview of the book of Acts using the priest-king prophet paradigm. We've also included a couple of really helpful handouts on the book of Acts that you can find in the show notes. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this discussion. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers starting our new series on the book of Acts. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here to do with James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background helping to make sure everything is running smoothly. And Brian is responsible for the editing that smooths out all the awkward silences uh, and uh, all the uh, nasty name calling that uh, breaks out during the course of the podcast. You don't get, you don't hear any of that because uh, Brian removes all that. So uh, we leave the impression that we all get along and we all uh, have uh, are uh, peacefully and calmly going through the scriptures. Uh, we were recording this in the midst of a, still in the midst of the coronavirus epidemic. We are praying for those of uh, our supporters, our listeners, praying for one another. We pray that you would uh, ask that you would pray for us. Uh, we have recorded a couple of podcasts that address the coronavirus epidemic specifically and some of the consequences for churches, the challenges for churches. Uh, but uh, And we're doing some other things that are addressing different aspects of that. But the podcast is returning to its regular format for the time being. I think inevitably we're going to have the current situation in the back of our minds as we go through the next series. Uh, but we're going back to a biblically focused series of podcasts. And this week we're starting a new series uh, on the book of Acts. Uh, we've covered portions of the Gospels in the past, but uh, we haven't uh, we haven't covered Acts in in depth at all. I've never covered Acts in depth myself either in preaching or teaching, so I'm looking forward to this. I've done overviews and and focused in on particular passages, but this will be a a great opportunity for all of us to think together about the Book of Acts. And Acts, of course, is a perennially relevant book uh, because it's a book about the church. It's a book about the formation of the church. And even though 
uh, it would be it is wrong to think that the book of Acts sets the pattern for the way the church must always be. There have been many Christians that have thought that that uh, the the way to uh, go forward for the church is always to go back and try to recreate the circumstances of the book of Acts. Uh, we don't share that opinion. We believe the church has genuinely developed and there have been changes in circumstance that are inevitable. We think there are unique things about the situation in the book of Acts uh, that uh, no longer apply to us. Yet still, uh, the book of Acts is the church book, the church narrative that we have in the New Testament. Uh, and there's much to learn about what the church is, how the church conducts its mission, how the con- church continues the work of Jesus. Uh, and I think particularly as we're thinking about uh, what may be a significant shift in our social and political circumstances coming out of the epidemic, no telling what kinds of uh, the depth of the changes that might take place in the way that we live uh, in our different countries and the way that the, the global economy works, uh, the way that nations relate to each other. So it's this is a good, I think, opportunity for us to think again about kind of foundational things about the church without taking acts as the permanent model for how the church must operate. It still gives us insight into what the church's mission is and how the church carries out that mission in the power of the Spirit and as the body of Christ. Today, we're going to uh, introduce the book of Acts by talking about the relationship between the Gospel of Luke and Acts. Uh, Those of you who are aware of Gospels, I think most of our listeners have at least a rudimentary understanding of uh, the Gospels of the New Testament. Uh, You'll know that the the Gospel of Luke is written by the same uh, person as the uh, writer of the book of Acts. The two books begin with an address to the same recipient, Theophilus, not Theopolis, but Theophilus. Uh, And the two books work together in various ways. So we want to explore the relationship between Luke and Acts. And then we want to think also about kind of get an overview, a feel for the book of Acts as a whole. Uh, In future podcasts, we'll be diving into particular chapters, sometimes spending more than one week on a single chapter, depending on its complexity and length. But right now, we want to just get a, a feel for the big picture and how the book fits together as a whole. And maybe one of the others of you can uh, interrupt my monologue and and, and give us uh, your take on the big picture of the book of Acts. How does how does Acts fit together, or how does how do Luke and Acts fit together as a two volume work? Well, I guess I'll jump in. One of and there's many things to say about this, uh, and there are there are charts and there are diagrams connecting Luke and Acts together. The way that um, Luke structures his gospel and the way that Acts is structured, very similar, um, very many uh, parallels. But one thing I'll point out is that Luke, of course, as an assistant to Paul, um, is uh, thoroughly Pauline in his, in his theology, if you will. And one of the things that Paul discovers when he's persecuting the church in Acts chapter 9 is that it turns out that the church is actually united to Jesus and is his body. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This becomes a pretty big theme, of course, in Pauline theology, uh, union with Christ and the body of Christ being uh, connected with Jesus. So one of the things that's interesting about this is that everything that Jesus goes through in his personal life, his ministry, um, is recapitulated in the church, in his body, so that the same kinds of um, attacks, the same kinds of trials, the same kinds of challenges that Jesus had, uh, his body, his church, his apostles 
have in the book of Acts. And it's fascinating to see that connection, uh, even to the point where when you get to the end of the book of Acts, Paul is uh, uh, traveling to Jerusalem like Jesus did. And he's going to have four trials uh, before the same sorts of people that Jesus had. Um, so things like that, connections like that are uh, interesting and instructive for us to see. I think one, uh, another wrinkle on that is the fact that uh, you do have instances where uh, Jesus promise, which is not in Luke, but in John, Jesus promises that the apostles will do greater things than he himself has done, where that's uh, made fairly explicit, where Jesus never healed anyone uh, by leaving a, uh, a napkin behind. But the apostles have, there are, there, are, there are relics, as it were, that have healing properties in the book of Acts. Peter is it that uh, heals by his passing shadow. That's, something, that's not something Jesus ever did. Jesus healed people first, and then Peter is healing people also. But then the book of Acts shows that there are greater things being done that by the apostles. The same kinds of things, but in the power of the Spirit, they're actually accomplishing something that Jesus himself did not. And it's clearly a second stage of the ministry that Christ has established. It's all that Christ began both to do and teach in the book of Luke. And then in the book of Acts, we're seeing that continue. I think beyond that, there's a presenting question at the very beginning of the book of Luke, at the beginning of the book of Acts, that helps us to see part of what Luke is trying to achieve within it. There's the question of, will the Lord restore at that time the kingdom to Israel? And the book is in part an answer to that question. By the very end, we have the great statement that is quoting the book of Isaiah, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand, etc. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. So there's not just a matter of replaying the story of Christ, or even bringing it to the next level with the ministry of the Spirit. There's also the question of how is this going to fit in with the redemptive history of Israel, where we've been expecting this restoration of the kingdom? Christ has risen from the dead. It seems that the stage is set, but yet Israel's not responding. How do we understand this? And then that will in turn lead into the work of Paul in Romans, which brings that question to a more theological sort of analysis. To state the obvious, but a lot of that is reflected in the geography of the book, the way in which things begin in Jerusalem and then move out as a result of persecution to Samaria. And then we have the formation of a church in Antioch and, and later on in Rome. So there is this spreading. But at the same time, there is still a centering in Jerusalem. So as the mission goes out to the Gentiles and there is much rejection among the Jews, nevertheless, there is a central council in Jerusalem. So there, there is this expansion, but at the same time, there's, there's not um, instantly a, a rejection of Jerusalem. Yeah, I think that the geographic pattern, I think, is interesting, particularly when you join Luke and Acts together. Luke is structured around Jerusalem in a very explicit way. It begins and ends with people in the temple. It begins with Zechariah in the temple. It ends with the apostles back in the temple praising God. Each of the large sections of the Gospel of Luke uh, climaxes in Jerusalem. Uh, the infancy narratives climax with Jesus and his parents in Jerusalem at the, when Jesus is 12. You have the long journey narrative from the transfiguration to the triumphal entry from chapters 9 to 19 of Luke. That's all journey directed. There's a lot of things that happen, but it's all journey directed toward Jerusalem. 
And then instead of uh, a great commission at the end of Luke, as you have in Matthew, instead of sending the apostles out, Jesus tells them to remain in Jerusalem until the promise comes, the spirit comes. And that's where we find them at the end of Luke and then also at the beginning of Acts. And the action of Acts in the first six chapters is all in Jerusalem. Nothing's happening outside. And uh, nobody leaves Jerusalem until, even when the Spirit comes, they don't leave Jerusalem. Nobody leaves Jerusalem until Stephen is martyred. And it's the martyrdom of Stephen. It's the first uh, bloodshed by a disciple of Jesus, the first disciple who uh, takes up the cross and literally follows Jesus into death. That's what begins the mission that spreads out. And it's the mission is in, in some ways a uh, just a diaspora. It's people fleeing from Jerusalem out of fear. And as they flee, they go to Antioch and then they end up in other places. Philip goes and meets a, uh, the eunuch and go, goes to Samaria and meets the Ethiopian eunuch. But that's all, that's all the uh, reverberations of the martyrdom of Stephen. So from there, things begin to spread out. So you have Luke is, uh, everything's moving toward Jerusalem. You have this time in Jerusalem at the end of Luke and in the first chapters of Acts. And then the, the detonation of the martyrdom of Stephen begins to send these shockwaves. And that's, that's, what, that's what really ignites the mission. It's the death of Stephen that, uh, practically speaking, uh, gives the impetus to the mission in the book of Acts, or the mission outside of Jerusalem. Peter, add to that the uh, fact that in Acts chapter 12, it's the death of Peter, the uh, death and resurrection, if you will, of Peter uh, and his going away, that then uh, is the impetus for Paul's ministry to begin in Acts 13 uh, and expand into the... um, the, the the whole world. So it both of these points when you're moving from uh, Judea to into the land in uh, Acts six as you Acts seven as you mentioned, and then actually in twelve and thirteen when you're moving from the land into the world, you have these uh, death resurrection events. Although there's no resurrection for Stephen, but there is for um, Peter, uh, and then taking Peter's place is Paul. Uh, and then there's an expansion at that point. Yeah, and the death and resurrection you're talking about for Peter, the death and resurrection you're talking about for Peter is the his imprisonment and his release in chapter 12. Yes, yes, yes. One of the things that the book of Acts does is answer the question of, we've arrived at the climax of redemptive history. Christ has come, he's ministered, he's died, and raised. he's been raised again. So what now? Is there any way in which the subsequent history fits into what has gone before? How do we understand this position, which is in the aftermath of the great climax? And it seems to me that the book of Acts presents us with a great many different frameworks for understanding clearly how we fit onto the map of redemptive history as the church, how we relate to the ministry of Christ, how we continue the ministry of Christ, and how the story of the Old Testament, the promises of the prophets, etc., are being fulfilled in the church, not just in Christ as an individual, but in Christ's body and by the work of his Holy Spirit. I think the way it does that is by exploring what it means to be united to Christ, what it means to have a two-stage ministry, the ministry of the bridegroom and the bride, the way in which there is a movement out into the wider world. We've already seen this within the Old Testament as there's a movement from the sanctuary to the land to the empires. And you're seeing, you're seeing the same thing within the book of Acts, this movement out from Jerusalem. And so I think within the book is 
a theological framework for interpreting where we stand as Christians, members of the church, within our period in history. It's not just about these events happened, aren't these miraculous works of God showing his power in the world, but it's giving you a framework for understanding where we fit into the larger story. A lot of that is introduced for us in Luke, isn't it? Luke uniquely situates the birth of Jesus within the context of Rome and gives us Caesar's behaviour and, I guess, filling out then that Roman Empire um, is precisely what happens in the book of Acts. Yeah, I wanted to go back to a comment made about the the importance of Jerusalem throughout the book of Acts, which I, I think is is there, although Jerusalem is not the sending city for Paul's missions. Uh, Antioch becomes the sending city for the Gentile mission, and Paul doesn't end in Jerusalem the way that uh, Jesus does. His journey goes through Jerusalem and then goes on to Rome. But there's a sense in which it's still Jerusalem-centered, but I think that that's one of the things we have to consider as consider the first century context. Uh, I believe Acts was written prior to the destruction of Jerusalem, prior to AD 70. Uh, and the, the, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70 is a, marks a massive shift and causes a massive shift in the whole arrangement of worship and the arrangement of life and in the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. So I think that's one of the things we need to, we need to, well, we will need over the course of the next few months as we work on this uh, to try to sort through exactly what force Jerusalem has in Acts and then ask the question, is that, to what extent is that specific to the circumstances of the first century? Isn't it important also to remember that um, this is a transitional period? You just mentioned it was written before AD 70. And there's a lot in the book of Acts uh, that reminds us that we're still in this um, time period where you're coming out of the old world and coming into the new world. So there's still Jerusalem, there's still a temple. There's still sacrifices. Paul still engages in Nazarite vows. Um, he's still going to the Jews first, at least uh, in his in the first part of his ministry. In the end, he decides he's no longer going, as we know in Acts 28. But there's this transitional character to the whole book that, well, one, we need to just remember when we're preaching on it and teaching on it, that not everything in the book of Acts is directly applicable to us, as you said earlier in your introductory remarks, Peter. But two, it then it helps us to understand what's going on actually in um, in Jerusalem, in the land, in these cities. And for one thing, uh, there are lots of believers in Israel who are just now hearing about Jesus the Messiah and coming to faith in him. That's something that's something unique. That's something uh, that um, has to do with coming out of the old into the new is uh, people, when when Paul goes to these synagogues, he speaks to Jews, some of whom are, are believers in the old covenant sense of the word, and some of whom are not. Um, and those kinds of situations are, that's a lot different than the kind of thing that we face today. One thing that the book of Acts does is to present the ministry of the early church against the backdrop of the rulers of the nations. Paul is defending himself before kings and rulers, and it's showing the ministry of Christ penetrating into the very heart of the Roman Empire, that in the Gospels we see Christ stand before um, the Sanhedrin and before Pilate and Herod is important, but what we see in the book of 
acts goes beyond that. It's Paul appealing to Caesar, for instance. And within that movement, we're seeing something about the character of the gospel itself, that the gospel is a proclamation not just to be understood against the horizon of the life of Israel and its redemptive history, but it has a cosmic purpose and relevance and force that particularly comes out when you see Paul addressing, for instance, the people on Mars Hill or speaking in the context of his defences before kings. The other thing that I think we see there is the way in which Luke will withhold a bit more within his gospel in ways that the other gospel writers don't in terms of presenting events within the land in a way that prefigures what's going to take place later. So within each of the other gospels, they speak about the sea of Tiberias or the sea of Galilee, whereas for Luke, it's always the lake. Um, Luke has a sea, but that comes later on, and that's the Mediterranean. It seems to me that Luke is holding back some of the energy of this sea metaphor that connects with the Gentiles to something that comes later on in his story, because his story is drawn on this greater, um, in terms of these greater horizons, that has this ministry to the Gentiles, not just prefigured, but actually declared and described. Yeah, so, so literally, the two, the two volumes don't just fit end to end, like uh, Luke finished uh, his gospel and then said, oh, I'm going to continue uh, now with a with another another part of the story with the book of Acts, but the way that the two books work together, and you can find a lot of details that 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 uh, will support this. The two books work together and show that there's deliberate, uh, yeah, deliberate lacunae in in Luke that are filled out in Acts. Things that are left unsaid in Luke that are that are said more fully or are said in Acts. So it's clear that Luke uh, designed the two books to work together. Uh, and was it, it appears to me if, if you're just thinking about uh, the provenance of the books that uh, that Luke intended the two volumes from the beginning. Uh, just the, the too many details that that uh, fit into that pattern. Uh, Jeff, I wanted to ask you to elaborate something. I know when you've taught on Acts before, you and you alluded to the to the uh, temple land world kind of paradigm, but you've also seen a paradigm or a progression from priest to king to prophet as you go through the book of Acts. So the, that that large-scale framework that uh, uh, Jim Jordan has taught us uh, over over many years, uh, you've seen that on a small scale within within the Acts. And uh, could you elaborate on how that how that fits into the book? Yeah. Uh, how long do I have? 45 minutes? Is that <laughs> all right? Um, sure, <laughs> sure so, Jeff. Um, <laughs> yes. So, for example, it's in – Chapters one through five, which is a, has a definite priestly cast to it. Um, you you're at the temple, uh, you're at the beautiful gate in Acts three. Um, the name of Jesus is the new covenant name of God. Uh, in in um, uh, in the speeches of Peter and of James and John, you have this uh, the sin of sacrilege in Acts two. Uh, is uh, put on the the Jews because they killed Jesus. Uh, the section ends with the Passover. At the end of the pericope, there's uh, all these priests converted. So it, it just fits with um, priestly activity of the church. The church is going through this maturation process of priest, king, and prophet. And then in Acts 6 through 12 is this royal phase where you're largely dealing with synagogues 
in Judea, in the land. And you're also going to Joppa, to Caesarea. There's the Ethiopian eunuch. Um, and we have this bifurcation of, of the church into two communities, the Hebrews and the Hellenists. Uh, we have a new ministry developing about, and it's all about wisdom. It's the wise thing to do here for the apostles to set apart these men to feed people. Well, actually, it turns out they're more like the first ministers. They're also preaching, Stephen and Philip. You have brother-brother conflict here uh, and hatred, uh, killing Stephen. That's that's a uh, that's what happens in the land. That's what happens in the royal phase. The sin is murder. And then Stephen, of course, addresses the rulers. Uh, they kill him. There's, I already mentioned the Ethiopian. Oh, it's in Acts 9 that there's a Saul and there's a the new son of David. And Saul is persecuting Jesus, the son of David. And uh, God-fearers end up believing in Acts 10. Uh, and there's a famine. And then finally, Herod, King Herod, kills James and imprisons Peter. So that's the, the royal phase. Then in Acts 13 through 20, it's prophetic. Um, it begins with prophets in Acts 13, prophets in Antioch. And then, obviously here, Paul is is going out into the world, uh, into the empire, and engaging with rulers of Gentile lands. Sergius Paulus, the first one in Acts 13, Alistair already mentioned this, turning to the Gentiles, um, and more could be said about that. But that's the basic flow and pattern, I think, of the maturation of the body of Christ. And it follows, of course, exactly what Jesus said uh, when he said that you're going to be witnesses or uh, in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And that connection with witness bearing, I think, also helps us to understand something of the importance of what's taking place in Acts. In the book of Acts, we're hearing about what the disciples did in bearing witness to the resurrected Christ. But we're also having a sense of what witness bearing meant for them and the integrity of them as witness bearers and of the community of the witness bearers. The traveling that we see to and fro within the book of Acts helps us to read the epistles. We begin to understand the gospels as well, not just as the product of isolated communities, the Matthean community, the Lucan and the Johannine community, etc., but of a network of different churches that were in constant correspondence, sharing ministers, people traveling to and fro on business, and giving gifts from one church to another. In that sort of network, you have a far more certain witness bearing than you would have in the sort of network conceived of by many more liberal scholars. But it's precisely that sort of tightly connected network that we see within the book of Acts. We also see the witness bearers are people who were prepared to um, pay with their lives for what they were bearing witness to. That the witness bearing is not something that can be detached from the lives that people were leading. So I think it gives us a sense of coherence for the biblical witness in the New Testament more generally, and a greater sense of certainty in what it's depending upon. It's depending upon, ultimately, the event of Pentecost, and it's arising out of that as a coherent ministry empowered by the Holy Spirit of Christ, who is overseeing all things in heaven and who is assuring this mission that it will go to its full end and purpose. And the witness bearers are sure and certain um, bearers of testimony about Christ. And I think in that respect, the book of Acts helps to bring together the witness of the whole New Testament more generally. 
So part of the network you're talking about is, would be, for example, Paul's uh, missionary journeys are also journeys of collection, collecting funds to help uh, relieve a relief for the famine in Jerusalem. So that's a, that's the kind of network you're talking about, not just a network of witnesses, but it has this uh, a network of churches that has this uh, more holistic kind of work. Yes, and that along with, for instance, Luke accompanying him. So Luke would have have lots of access to different people who had witnessed the risen Christ, and he would also spread their witness. So people in churches far away would never be more than one or two steps removed from someone who firsthand witnessed the resurrected Christ. I want to say a a couple of things about the, I I said at the beginning that uh, Luke and Acts kind of match up in their structure. We've talked a a bit about how they match up. If you put them end to end, they form a a two-volume work that's in their, it's woven together in various ways. But you can also, like like John and Revelation, you can set Luke and Acts side by side, and you can see a kind of common progression as you move through that. So the, the story of what Jesus began to do and teach in Luke is replicated, not just in general, but almost uh, not, not episode by episode, but in significant, there's significant parallels in the way that the books run if you set them side by side. So, for example, Mary is a prominent figure at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, uh, We have the uh, infancy narratives, more elaborate infancy narratives in Luke than we have elsewhere. Uh, Mary is not a a prominent figure elsewhere in Luke, but she reappears at the beginning of Acts. She's among the 120 in the upper room when uh, they choose the, the new 12th apostle. And so there's a reference to Mary there. The gift of the Spirit comes to Jesus in, in Luke chapter 3 at his baptism. Uh, there's an uh, outpouring of the Spirit, obviously, at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. You have uh, miracles done uh, in Jesus' ministry uh, and the similar kind of miracles that are done by the, the apostles in Jerusalem and then elsewhere. Uh, one of the big structural things that, that's parallel is the journey narrative you have. Uh, I mentioned the journey narrative in Luke already, uh, Jesus moving from Galilee to Jerusalem. Uh, and you have the uh, a huge journey narrative at the end of Acts as uh, Jeff was saying you have these parallels between Paul's trials and the trials of Jesus uh, and you can see uh, if you if you chart the chart the episodes out you can see uh, further parallels between what's happening to Paul and what's happening to Jesus uh, and it's the showing that Paul is filled with the spirit of Jesus and therefore his life is conformed to the life of Jesus but just and I'm I'm making the literary point that just as a as a in a literary structure in the literary fashion that the two books are running parallel to each other and then you have Jesus ending in Jerusalem. Here, here we have a discontinuity, obviously, but Paul ending, continuing his mission in Rome. Uh, and as Alistair pointed out, the, the long quotation from Isaiah 6 about the, the Lord's, uh, uh, about the, the dullness, blindness, and deafness of Israel and Paul's turn to the Gentiles. You can find those in commentaries, but I just wanted to throw at least some of those details out to, to suggest it's a project worth doing to just... Uh, Run through the two books in parallel and and look at how the two things fit, the two books fit together. They uh, not only form a single coherent narrative horizontally, as it were, but if you compare them side by side, they're they're parallel narratives. Another example of that, which maybe fits in with some of the things that Jeff and Alistair have pointed out, is the the theme of of jubilee and the reclamation of land and ultimately of all creation. When we consider Jesus genealogy in Luke, we noted that it was this sevenfold, it's a 77-man genealogy. And mixed in with that, we have this this um, 
return of people to their hometowns by Caesar, and we have Jesus' proclamation of the year of the Lord's favor in his hometown. And the uh, story of Acts starts with some similar imagery. Um, There is Pentecost, which is a a kind of mini jubilee. It is a 50th day at the end of a seven-week period. And then coming after that, there is the sort of return of, of land to some extent. Land from foreign uh, foreign places is, is put at the feet of the um, apostles and then is starts to be used and redistributed. And I think that forms a, a helpful theological backdrop to see the advance of God's kingdom. It, it is the reclamation, really, of, of, of what is God's. And as the gospel goes out, it is God's assertion of ownership of, of Samaria and the nations and the ends of the earth. Maybe I, I could just make a, a quick comment about the flow of the book of Acts. Reading through it recently, one of the things that struck me is the way as the book seems to get to its climax um, and it feels like the gospel is about to take root in Rome, you kind of get bogged down by this long series of trials and legal affairs and Paul giving his defence to the Jews and then to various other people. And I think that's very important for Luke. I think Luke wants to show that Paul shouldn't be seen as this apostate from Judaism who's been waylaid by a new religion and he shouldn't be seen as a lawbreaker either. We are to see him as the model of a true Jew who is, who is fulfilling the demands and the spirit of the law. And that seems actually, it reminds me slightly of the book of Ruth, which, like Acts, as it comes to its climax, it gets slightly bogged down in this um, legal scene, which seems to come out of nowhere. But the purpose of it is to show that Boaz, in, in taking this Gentile bride, isn't doing something inappropriate or contrary to the law. Like Paul, he is precisely fulfilling the spirit of the law and its demands. We could maybe also think about the commonality of themes between the book of Luke and Acts. It's not just in the storyline, it's not just in the pattern in which the story is told and the way that one follows from another. We see the same emphases at certain points. So the importance of the Holy Spirit as that which drives the ministry of the church, just as we see the Spirit at several points at the beginning of the book of Luke in the statement that John the Baptist will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, the fact that the Spirit will come upon Mary in a sort of Marian Pentecost, many have seen it, the Spirit um, opening up the mouth of Elizabeth and then Zechariah, and then the Spirit leading Simeon into the temple, and then the Spirit descending upon Christ at his baptism. In all of these events, the Spirit is focused upon. And then later on in the book, as we work through it, we see again and again, Luke emphasizes prayer and prayer is present in scenes that it's not present in, in the other synoptic uh, gospels and also in the book of John. It seems to me that that emphasis continues into the book of Acts. So the importance of prayer is prominent within the book of Acts. This is how the ministry of the church proceeds. There's also an emphasis upon journeys. Um, We have a number of journeys that shape the book of Luke. Jesus is on a long journey from um, Galilee to um, Judea, and that journey takes up about a third of the book in sharp contrast with the books of Matthew and Mark. And the book of 
Acts has a similar character to it. There's also the way that journeys can provide a framework for understanding um, movements and understanding of the church. So there's the journey to Emmaus and the way in which that plays out a liturgical pattern of the word followed by the sacrament. And we see the same thing in the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch and also in Paul's conversion as Saul on the road to Damascus and that leading him to baptism. The book of Acts has this long storyline of a journey towards Rome and then before that towards Jerusalem. And it helps us, I think, also to see the prophetic themes. Um, James Jordan has talked about the way that we can see the synoptic gospels in terms of a priestly emphasis in the book of Matthew, a kingly emphasis within the book of Mark particularly. And then in Luke, we see prophetic themes, one of those being the peripatetic character of the prophet who wanders from place to place and is associated with the wider world of the nations. And that continues very much into the book of Acts. And that journey narrative, I think, foregrounds that prophetic character of the church's ministry, as does the day of Pentecost itself. The witness bearing of the church, the empowering of the spirit, the journeying from place to place, the witness bearing before the nations, and then more generally, the importance of prayer. All of these foreground the prophetic themes that Luke has already brought out in his gospel, but he wants to continue into the ministry of the church. Yeah, and I think that that's a good way to uh, get back to the some of the original earlier comments that we started with and the, the importance of the, the book of Acts in the life of the church. Again, without setting up Acts as the permanent model for how church should be done, uh, it is revealing to us the continuation of Jesus' ministry through his church. Uh, and that's done, as Alistair has said, in the power of the Spirit. It's done through prayer. It's done through prophetic witness. It's done through baptism, as Jesus says in the Great Commission, baptism is uh, central to the discipling of the nations. So the book of Acts is about the church being caught up into the mission of Jesus by the power of the Spirit and continuing the mission of Jesus uh, through the world. The, the book of Acts sets this trajectory that the church is still on, uh, and we, we too are continuing the ministry of Jesus in the power of His Spirit so that the, the nations can come to know Him and uh, the world will be covered with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's an exciting book to read, isn't it? It fills you with a sense of optimism and expectancy and, and so forth. It's a very encouraging book, I find. You know, a lot of people today think that Jesus needs to return bodily in order to set things right, uh, that nothing can be made right until he returns. And so uh, almost as if people are like giving up on things, giving up on marriages and families and especially communities and cities and nations because we're going to wait for Jesus to come back and fix things. Um, and it's almost as if here in Acts, at the beginning, um, the disciples expected Jesus to do that. You know, Lord, when will you restore the kingdom to Israel? And then Jesus turns and says, no, no, uh, you're going to receive power. Uh, the Spirit's going to come upon you, and you're going to change the world. Um and if we just think about the absolute mess that the disciples were looking at and how bad human life had come to at this time in AD 33 or whenever it is, uh, consider how dark it was, demons all over the Holy Land, temple is corrupt and condemned, uh, the leadership of Israel were corrupt beyond description, Jesus pronounces woes on them. Uh, the disciples are hiding in secret because they're afraid. Uh, and just 
just 40 days before this, the, the, the people of God have conspired, the chosen people conspired to put their Messiah to death. And so all around is strife, hatred, suspicion, uh, conspiracy, rivalry, demons, abusive power, theft. And the disciples are vastly outnumbered and they're scared and they're hiding. And Jesus comes and says, no, no, no I'm going to give you the spirit and you're going to establish you're going to establish this kingdom that I've been talking about all through my ministry. It's going to come through you. And that really ought to empower and encourage us as Christians uh, as we look around and think about how bad things are. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.